Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. Uh, Chris and I just had about a podcast worth of discussion before the podcast, but we're going to try and give you a good one anyway. This is a weekly 15-minute long podcast, and the clock starts now. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager here at Rangely Capital, and with me as always is my co-host and the founder of Rangely Capital, Chris Lemieux. It's Wednesday, November 11th, and we're going to kick things off with this week's article of the week. It's called West New Demand Turns Local Bank Deposits into Riches. It's an article from May 2015 in the Boston Globe. And uh, Chris, why don't we start off? Can you kind of, why don't you give an overview of the conversion process and what the article's talking about? Sure, Andrew. Uh, You know, sometimes people have pre-parties. We had a (laughs) pre-podcast today. And uh, so we have lots of good material in podcast increments for the uh, subsequent few weeks. Uh, So uh, this week we're talking about a West Newton man who turns local bank deposits into riches. Yeah. Uh, a fairly broad description of riches here. I think the <laughs> headline writer was using some liberties, but uh, he apparently has a tactic involving owning deposits. Yep. These are federally insured uh, So a normal bank deposit, go to the, the local bank, put $1,000 in, take a deposit. And somehow he gets equity out of this. So this seems to be a magnificent opportunity. And it's one that I have spent my approximately 10% of my waking hours thinking about for the last uh, decade and a half. Having worked with you for two months now and known you for much longer than that, I can say 10% is probably an, a big underestimate of how much time you spend thinking about these. It's an obsession uh, on, I don't know why we talk about dating so much, but on dates, uh, <laughs> at some point in the evening, my wife puts a moratorium on discussion of credit unions. My, my own family, due to my parents' Uh, don't like hearing about this more than a certain amount. Um, but uh, yeah, no, this is um, uh, has always been an interest of mine. It's not in the press much, but uh, we saw an article on it this week. So why don't you start? Uh, so I put a thousand dollars deposit into a mutual bank, mm-hmm. and uh, tell me what makes a mutual bank different than a normal bank. What? How is this deposit different? The difference is that a for-profit bank. Uh, typically, uh, and there are some very small ones uh, that you can own uh, that are for profit, but uh, uh, the large ones that we're familiar with, JP Morgan, JP Morgan, America, yeah. uh, are owned by shareholders. They yep. separately have depositors. Uh, their fiduciary duty is for their shareholders. They presumably do an at least okay job for the depositors. The depositors don't care because it's federally insured. Yep. Uh, and uh, so there's two attributes to them. They can, uh, they can grow as fast as the market will allow them, and they pay taxes. Yep. Uh, now, that is very different than a mutual, that mm-hmm. the, the credit unions and mutuals, the other non-public uh, institutions, uh, they don't pay taxes in the same way that a J.P. Morgan would. They have a different regulator, and they have uh, limitations. They're... Uh, they are owned by the depositors. Yeah. Uh, they cannot grow conveniently beyond that community of the depositor base. So, so in theory, you own it. However, uh, you own it much in the way that you own the Washington Monument. Very much in theory, if you tried to build an addition on it, 
the uh, park police would probably stop you, uh, uh, stop you um, and at least they'd ask you some questions. Um, and so uh, this seems like a kind of ownership that is not uh, given much thought, but every once in a while it matters. Yep, so I think our discussion last week was how do you value an asset if you can either buy or sell it, so it kind of plays into this. But So I have this $1,000 deposit, which mm -hmm. technically uh, gives me an equity stake in the bank, an ownership mm -hmm. stake in the bank. Uh, this bank, it doesn't have to pay taxes, it, it's uh, regulated by different regulators. Why does a mutual bank decide to convert into a, let's call it a normal bank? Well, uh, 100 years ago, or even 50 years ago, these typically were small organizations. Mm -hmm. If we work together in a union on the factory line, uh, the reason why the government doesn't tax these is they thought there was a social function served by if you had a little extra money and I couldn't make it to my next payday, uh, that you might uh, loan me a little money for a car or something. And this yep. was an informal, small, community-level organization. Today, there are some that are the largest financial institutions in certain states, yep. multi-billion-dollar organizations. And from the bank's perspective, they're like competitors that don't pay taxes, that are subsidized by the taxpayer. Uh, and uh, so why would you change that situation? You change it if the growth prospects allowed you to grow, and it's the arithmetic's pretty simple, uh, beyond your deposit base so much that even on an after-tax basis, it's more valuable. That's the, uh, that is the uh, general view. The specific view is the insiders can make more money than they ever would in any other way. You know, for, we obviously do a lot with incentives. I think for insiders, it's also an interesting thought process where if you have a depositor base, you really don't have any specific owners you have to uh, kind of talk to. Whereas you see with a lot of these mutual banks, once you're public, uh, there are shareholders who can acquire large stakes in your company and kind of you have to answer to them. Um, because I'm cool, I go to a lot of the trade association <laughs> and regulator uh, uh, events for this industry, uh, as one does. And uh, and if I kind of ask around about accommodations and flying, I am an order of magnitude beneath what everybody else in this industry spends on themselves. Since there's equity and nobody's watching it, yep. uh, it goes somewhere. Uh, and uh, where it goes is to spectacular waste and inefficiency. Uh, I'll leave it at those two and not use the other one off in, the, in, the, in that sentence, but, uh, uh, but it's, uh, it's there. There's so, one uh, that I looked at in Texas that for a long time uh, I thought and hoped it would convert. Uh, they didn't for years. They finally did, and the CEO bought a boat and parked it right next to <laughs> the old boat of the other guy, and the other guy announced a conversion the next year. <laughs> there. So, uh, so this is a big opportunity for insiders. So we've talked about insider incentives. We've talked about you know uh, depositors are the owners. Uh, so after the bank converts, kind of what makes it attractive for depositors or even potential future shareholders to invest in a bank that's going from a mutual bank conversion to a normal bank? Sure. Well, uh, here's how it looks. Uh, the first step involves a regulatory filing, um, and it's surprisingly onerous. Uh, the reason why it's so onerous is the predecessor, not successor, regulatory agency mm -hmm. manages the process. Uh, they're managing a process that involves their funding leaving, where they're funded based on the regulatory insurance, which is returned when somebody leaves. Yep. So uh, to say that they're sticklers 
Uh, they once rejected a filing uh, of an institution I was involved with because it was folded three ways, much like we normally fold a letter. Yeah. And they said this could confuse people because they had to unfold it, <laughs> that you have to mail it as an eight and a half by 11 mailing. So in a manila envelope. In, in case somebody great. is confused by the smaller envelope. Uh, and this was hundreds of thousands of dollars of mailing. I mean, this is going out to a large group. And so they make it as, as difficult as possible. Um, also, non-votes equal no votes, so you have to find these people. And I, I really, um, you know, kind of stay very engaged with management when they're working through this process. So, so that's why it can be difficult for a bank to convert. But why is it attractive to own the equity either, you know, as the bank goes from a mutual to a normal bank, or even in the normal bank right after it goes, uh, right after it converts? Here's, here's, I'm, I'm slow rolling this just for to add to the kind of this. <laughs> This, this huge uh, 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 enthusiasm that, that people are waiting uh, with bated breath for, which is that what happens is picture that you are, imagine if you will, that we were cutthroat profit-seeking capitalists. Okay. Can you imagine that? It doesn't imagine, take too much imagination. Imagine you were in it for the money. Imagine that you simply wanted to get your capital back and you wanted a reasonable return and that you had very little uh, a sentiment and nostalgia associated with this. What would be even better than having those views is to be in a hippie commune where other people <laughs> had no consideration for the value and so that they were kind of meandering away. So when somebody said something like, we need this transaction to clear, so we're going to offer it at a substantial discount to yeah. tangible book value, uh, say, Andrew, would anybody in this room like to buy the stock we're offering it between 60 and 70% of tangible book value. The more people walk away, the more the need to lower and lower the price. The supply is this institution at a time when they think they can grow. The demand is a subset of the members who want to buy it. So it's not a normal market transaction. And it's one where you simply do the work. You don't have to buy it if you don't want to. But if you do, you're competing against many people who simply throw away the envelope. Yep. And that's the kind of person I like to compete against. So I, I just want to clarify for readers, tangible book value, uh, if a bank has $100 in assets and kind of $90 in liabilities, so $100 in loans, $90 in liabilities, the difference, $10 would be tangible book value. And Chris is saying in this case, you could buy for five, six, seven dollars mm -hmm. So Chris, we're kind of running out of time here. I want to real quickly ask, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the ways you can typically get access to a mutual bank is you need to be kind of a resident or you need to belong to a local organization. I, over under 50 organizations across the country, how many do you belong to to get access to these local banks? Oh, 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 if you gave me the 50 ahead of time, I'm probably already in 20 or 30. I'm in, I think, 400 uh, community organizations. Yep. The standard is typically you have to live, work, or worship uh, in the area. Uh, and uh, the asterisk says that historically there was a transitive property such that if you were in a membership-owned organization within a community, that would be good enough. So I, I believe it's Detroit where you belong to the local museum, and that allows you to get access to the community community bank. Yep, and, and every once in a while when I'm traveling, I tend to have places to go because I'm a member of the local zoo or the PTA or whatever. And how many different mutual banks do you have? deposit accounts at right now hundreds hundreds great great okay so uh with that before we go, turn to our stock of the day i want to make a quick request to our listeners if you like our podcast thanks for listening please subscribe on itunes or soundcloud 
If you already subscribe, uh, please recommend it to a friend who might be interested. We're trying to kind of increase our distribution. And if you don't think it's recommending for some reason, please reach out to Chris or me and give us any feedback on how you think we can improve. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, so that said, Chris, let's turn to our stock of the day. And this is a formal mutual bank in which you were invested. Uh, why don't you give us a little background? Sure. Um, shortly after the kind of during kind of the early parts kind of coming out of the financial crisis, uh, there uh, was one that we liked uh, that was called Ocean Shore, ticker OSHC. Mm -hmm. uh, you should probably mention that we own uh, just a bit under 10% of it. Uh, for regulatory reasons, it's hard for us to earn more than that. Yep. Uh, and we were asked the question, did we want to buy a uh, several million dollars of this at $8 per share. That was roughly 60% of tangible book value. We thought that tangible book value was understated substantially uh, due to some regulatory capital they were forced to have that was going to slough off in subsequent years. At the time, there were three potential buyers that would have been good fits. And so we just had to buy it and wait. We bought it. Uh, we had bought as much as we could. Uh, we uh, waited for the three-year moratorium in which the bank can't sell. Yep. Uh, and so then we waited for two more years. So just to clarify, when a bank goes from a mutual conversion to a normal bank, uh, there's a three-year process under which they cannot, for regulatory reasons, they cannot sell to another bank. And Chris, I'll let you tell the that, but many of these banks do sell after that three-year process has yes. expired. Correct. It's, it's about 75% sell in the fourth or fifth year. Yep. Um, and uh, in this case, it didn't. We still own uh, our equity. Uh, the, uh, it's, it, the good news is it's up 130% or so from, from in terms of our total return. Uh, the better news is that it is substantially undervalued today. Yep. Uh, the bad news is... Uh, my non-existent record for precision and timing has been uh, crushed as uh, this was uh, something that I thought should have and would have sold by now. But so hasn't. We mentioned uh, three, three people originally who you thought would be attractive buyers. Give me those three. Why do you think they think this would be attractive? Sure. Um, you know, if you look at the other financial institutions in the area, uh, and this is kind of the southern uh, coastal New Jersey, uh, there are quite a few that I would say are overcapitalized, that are looking for acquisitions, and uh, I'll, I'll give you one comment, but I'll be a little careful about who said it. Uh, one of the other CEOs in the area, when I kind of uh, was speaking with him about this opportunity in generic terms, asking if this was the kind of thing he'd be interested in, he said, no. I don't need one of those, I need five of them. Yeah. And sitting on so much money uh, in terms of money that we've raised, uh, we need to put it to work and there's one. Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting. I, I think we're both agreed that another thing that's kind of driving this consolidation is the regulatory environment. It's so expensive for these small banks to be standalone. It just really makes sense for them to sell to larger banks, but unfortunately we don't have time for that. Uh, I hope everyone's enjoyed the conversation today. Uh, let's see. That's all the time we have this week. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be doing a few more podcasts, and one of them probably the start of December. We're going to do unveil Rangeley's top stocks for 2016. Really looking forward to that. I think we've got some really excellent ideas there that are really kind of interesting stuff. 
Can't wait to reveal that to you. Uh, if you like this podcast, again, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. If you like our ideas but could do without our voices, please follow Chris and I on Seeking Alpha. Chris writes the M&A Daily column. I will write the Weekly Investing with an Edge column. Start of December, we'll also be publishing our top stocks for 2016 there. Thanks again for listening, and uh, we will talk to you next week.